Good afternoon. My name is Andrea Peter from uh, CEU Podcast Studio. This is the podcast of the Subcommittee of History of the Second World War of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences from CEU. And today I have the pleasure to interview Professor Philip Teer, who is the Director of Institute of East European History of the University of Vienna. And uh, he published several uh, books, including um, uh, Center Stage, Operating Culture and Nation Building in the 19th Century Central Europe by West Lafayette Press in 2014. Then the widely used textbook, The Dark Side of Nation States, Ethnic Cleansing in Modern Europe, Berghan, 2014. Then another textbook in 2016, Europe Since 1989, A History, Princeton University Press. The reason why we are talking here today is that he just published a new book uh, in Berlin by Surkam, The uh, Außenseiter, Flucht, uh, Flüchtlinge und Integration in Modernen Europa, uh, which is a book published in German, but the English publication is coming out um, very soon. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. It is a pleasure to be at CEU. And uh, this is a book about the refugees and uh, the history of modern Europe. Modern European history is filled with refugees and history of wars is also a history of refugees, forced moving resettlement. And uh, what is the new element? What is the new feature of the Second World War as far as history of refugees are concerned? The Second World War brings the largest numbers of refugees ever. By the way, also many more than today. Uh, we have gotten used to the UNHCR publishing numbers that, you know, ever more refugees and that, you know, in relation to the world population, that is getting ever worse. And this has been publicized in quite prominent books like by Betts and Collier, Oxford University Press. But actually, we had much higher numbers in history during and after World War One, but much higher numbers uh, during World War Two. And there's various estimates. It's very difficult to estimate during World War Two. But the numbers stand at around 40 million refugees. It's, of course, difficult to delineate, you know, who's a deportee, who's a refugee. Uh, there might be small space refugees um, or large, you know, large scale between various countries. Um, but anyway, 40 for the World War and then around 30 for the post-war period. But this is just statistics and numbers and I think that's not the best way to, to impress or to write history. What was so significant happened already in 1938 when the post-World War I order was finished by Hitler in the Munich Agreement in cooperation with the Western Allies. And basically the Paris peace treaties, including the minority protection, was abandoned. And the idea was then to build a new Europe based on ethnic boundaries. And so with no minority rights and with a so-called right of option. But anyway, where large populations would be reshuffled to be in line with the new state boundaries. Hitler sold that as an idea of peace. Then, well, then soon after he started the war. But anyway, this was implemented in large parts of Europe, in our region, in Central Europe and in Southeastern Europe. And that already costs Uh, several millions of people to flee or to or to resettle. And then there's the countries under direct German occupation. Now, I was rather talking about uh, the revisionist powers like Hungary, Bulgaria, etc., uh, Romania. 
Um, but anyway, then, you know, under direct German occupation, then the Red Army. So it's difficult to calculate. But uh, anyhow, this principle of bringing into line state boundaries and ethnic boundaries that then devastated large parts of Central and East Central Europe after 1944-45. You know, with uh, Germans being a main group targeted, also because of the question of the guilt of war and as kind of a collective punishment. But that was perceived as erecting a new, more stable post-war order. And even Winston Churchill stated that in his speech, interestingly enough, a speech on the future of Poland, 1944. There will be a clean sweep, you know, with none of those obnoxious minorities who have caused so many harm and conflict to remain. And that was then implemented in large parts of Europe, with Germans, with Poles, with Ukrainians, uh, Finns, Italians. So you have very many populations who were then cleansed, we may say, ethnically cleansed, but who also tried to escape from that, from the Red Army, from suppression, from, you know, daily discrimination. And so after World War II, you have around 30 million people who were affected in Europe. And in contrast to the wartime period, that was a permanent flight or ethnic cleansing. So that that's what makes World War II so huge and so unique. And uh, uh, nowadays, uh, very often historical analogy is used when we are trying to understand this very specific situation and circumstances when we are uh, living in. So when the so-called refugee crisis started uh, some years ago, very often this kind of historical analogy was uh, used from the Second World War. So what's your position regarding uh, historical analogy as a methodology, as a theoretical position, and also as a political position? I'm very careful about it, I have to admit. I mean, when I attended the last convention of the Association for Eastern European Studies and then Slavic Studies in the States, Trump was just elected. And then, you know, he had so many analogies. Uh, a more benign one, Berlusconi, you know, less nice ones, uh, Mussolini, you know, analogies with fascism, analogies even with national socialism. And I found it kind of strange and inconclusive. Um, so I think, you know, it can be used very well in political debates. It has been used all the time. If you pertain to the history of ethnic cleansing, you know, just think about the many times with Hitler analogies used in various circumstances, but for example, for Milosevic. And in retrospect, does it hold up? Not really, you know, in spite of all the atrocities, in spite of all the atrocities which were committed. And so this is more kind of the political instrumentalization of history, I think, which for which these analogies are used most often. For me as a historian, there's a more fundamental question, which is, I'm a comparative historian. So I've made many comparisons. If I may correct, uh, the last two books were not just textbooks, but they were also research books. Uh, but anyway, for example, in this um, 2014 book on uh, the new order on the old continent, or then, you know, Europe since 1989, the English version, um, I had a some country comparisons, but above all, urban comparisons, metropolitan or urban agrarian region comparison. However, all these comparisons were made on a synchronic basis. If you use a historical analogy, that means that you compare not on a synchronic level, within the same time period, 
but that you compare, so to say, anachronistically, you know, asynchronous. And that can, that can be very revealing and interesting. Just to give you one example, um, the economic trouble in Central and Eastern Europe after 89, with, you know, the big crisis, reduction in industrial production, mass unemployment, insecurity. So all, um, yeah, well, all the, the misfortunes of the transformation crises, if you want. I looked at the post-2008-2009 crisis in Southern Europe, especially in, in Italy, for this very, uh, the, not the refugee book, but the one before. And I found, oop, the slump in industrial production, the decrease in Italy after the crisis is on around the same level like the decrease of industrial production in the more lucky post-communist countries like Hungary, Czechoslovakia, or Poland. So then you get an idea, you know, how deep that crisis is in Southern Europe. And you also get an idea, you know, how different the answers have been. So, you know, sometimes it can be very revealing. Or we have had a conference actually in cooperation with Central European University in 2012. That was the Credit Conference in European History, abbreviated Gracie. I hope the listeners won't think about Grace Kelly now, but anyway, Gracie uh, conference in 2012, and there the topic was transformations in historical comparison. And there we set up a scheme to um, analyze post-Cesura or post-revolutionary transformations, not just after 1989, but for example, after 1918. And again, I found that very revealing. Um, but if you do that, it means that you pull uh, the case you study out of its context of time and quite often also out of its richer historical context. So, so to say, you isolate the case and then, of course, you know, you need to discuss all the criticism raised against comparisons. I mean, I'm convinced that it's still worse to compare various cases, but with asynchronous cases, it's especially challenging. In your book, you are questioning this push and pull uh, kind of explanation of uh, uh, refugees and, and migration. And you structure the book describing the major causes of light, religious, nationalist and political, ideological. So I'm just wondering um, uh, if you can uh, explain to the listeners why these three factors and why material and ecological are actually missing as uh, as possible drives. And I would like to also ask you what was the reason why you were actually creating these three big chapters explaining the phenomenon of um, of being a refugee and the refugee crisis flight is a form of migration uh, in german you can build those nice composite words uh, you can do, do that also in slavic languages but anyway you can talk about flucht migration so flight migration and anyway i i think that flight is you know a sub variant of migration and therefore in order to understand flight and to study it in a novel way, I think one should use uh, certain terms and ideas and concepts of migration history. And in migration history, of course, it is standard to talk about push and pull. And the point I made is that the pull plays usually a very, very minor role in mass refugee movements. 
it can play a role in the sense that, for example, when you have victims of ethnic cleansing, that they see that there is, you know, a state which might take care of them, kind of a co-ethnic, co-national state, and that's, you know, where they might move to. So they might try to get there, but that's not a pull in the sense that, you know, they feel particularly attracted and, you know, uh, in the sense of the pull in the labor migration to advance your living standards. So that's why I wanted to question this usual push and pull setup. Also because if you look at 20th century European history, but also, you know, other continents and um, parts of the globe, for example, China or other places in the 40s, then one has to acknowledge that actually flight migration in certain periods can be, can occur uh, on a more massive scale and can, so to say, be more important than labor migration, which all in all, of course, is more important nowadays, but it hasn't been more important in all times of history. Your second question was about uh, the subdivision of mass flight and the kind of typology I build up. The easiest solution, of course, would have been, especially for a textbook, uh, would have been just to write a chronology. Okay, so flight in early modern history, flight in the 19th century, in the 20th century, interwar periods, wartime, post-war, what have you. And I found that not very enlightening, I thought about it. I found it too simple. And I came to the subdivision of religious flight because that's how it starts when modernity or the modern period starts, 1492, that's a, or the early 16th century, depending where you are. And um, so religious flight at first is very important. Also, in developing the very term refugee, or in French, uh, refuge. Refuge as uh, the country where one uh, finds a place, right? where one can get to and and start a new life. So the refugee and the refuge. And so it is groundbreaking also in the sense that refugees were perceived, not everywhere, but, um, and, but not only by the receiving countries, also by the countries in between. Those religious refugees were mostly perceived as victims of persecution, as people who deserve support. So this you know, original affirmative attitude, which of course is deeper rooted in the Bible and in other fundaments of our culture, of European civilization, that comes up there as well. And so that, you know, there should be um, kind of a moral obligation to help refugees. Also, that is a very old motive. Then the political refugees, they are so important, not in a numeric sense, but because they have shaped our international legislation, international law, like like the Geneva Convention, 1951, which I interpret as an extension of the Human Rights Convention of the United Nations. But, but anyway, this is informed by the way how we have treated and perceived political refugees. Again, you know, with a mostly sympathizing view. And then the third large group, which I put into that typology are uh, victims of radical nationalism and ethnic cleansing. I will cut that short because I've mentioned them before concerning World War II. So, of course, the complication was that you develop three chronologies. But I think that's also not bad right? and more interesting because so the reader can select what he or she is most interested in. You know, some readers might be interested in the history of political refugees, Others might be more interested in religious refugees. But I'm, of course, aware that a typology 
is always based on kind of ideal types in the barbarian sense, and that there are overlaps. Of course, nation building in modern Europe has very often, not everywhere, but is correlated with um, religion and, and uh, has a confessional basis. Poles and Ukrainians, there's a religious divide, or Serbs and Croatians. Now, later on in the 20th century, that was misused, for example, in the wars of Yugoslav succession. Um, but anyway, so there it is connected, religion and nation building, of course. And nationalism is, again, of course, a very political ideology. So there's overlaps, but nevertheless, I found it more enlightening to use this typology. I hope the readers will agree. So far, most of them do. Um, your last question economic and ecological, now I would differentiate migrants, okay? I think one can distinguish migrants from refugees, labor migrants from flight migrants, so to say, if I uh, transpose the German term terminology. You can distinguish it by, I think, very simple distinctions. Uh, a labor migrant uh, migrates in order to advance his living standards. And the refugee leaves in order to save his or her life. And I think that's very different also in the way how it occurs, uh, the amount of traumatization, also the loss of property, which forces refugees usually to start really from the scratch. Whereas um, labor migrants arrive with at least some resources and also contacts back to their home country and, you know, where they can ask for support and help and so refugees have worse starting conditions to start a new life. And trauma, violence, all that is very different. Ecological migrants, in some books you read about ecological refugees. I think that's not a good distinction because most ecological changes occur over time in a longer period, 10, 20 years. Of course, there are exceptions like natural disasters a volcano or the potato bug in Ireland, okay, in the 19th century. Uh, but usually it occurs over longer periods of time and it reinforces those ecological changes then reinforce migration processes which we know anyhow. So from the countryside, from agrarian areas to the cities, usually within single countries at first. So this is much more related to other very traditional forms of economic, or if you want, labor migration, than to clear-cut refugee histories. I would like to ask about a um, kind of methodological issue, and this is about the Eurocentrism of this kind of uh, scholarship, because uh, for more than a decade we have this uh, concept of provincializing Europe. And uh, uh, you are actually arguing in this book in a very sophisticated way about um, how to deal this uh, European colonialism and the Eurocentrism in, um, in European uh, history. So I wonder if you can uh, share with the listeners uh, some of the considerations what you are using when you are writing about the colonial history and also about the impact of the colonial history and the uh, provincializing. Europe kind of concept. Well, Eurocentrism, you know, that has become kind of a, you know, a kill it all phrase. And, and I think basically, probably if one would write an intellectual history of the very concept, 
uh, then one would arrive that um, it was mostly developed, I think, in the United States to break the hegemony of European or European origin scholarship. So this was a quest for power, for intellectual power. Uh, to some degree, it has been fruitful, but you know, to lambast arguments and whole books that they're Eurocentric, I think that's ridiculous. If that would, it would be more convincing if we would have equivalent terms like Americanocentric or Asia-centric or Indiocentric. And I have taught and traveled in all those countries and continents I just mentioned, and you never find an awareness of their own centrism or an attack on that. Anyway, what I wanted to develop here, and that's indeed an alternative concept to uh, colonial or post-colonial studies, they have been preoccupied mostly with overseas connections, which is fine, you know, for Western Europe, for the overseas empires, the British, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese. But um, usually then post-colonial studies cover the reverberations and, you know, the, the back impact of the colonies on the motherland. That is the very original concept, which can be very fruitful. Nevertheless, it is preoccupied with overseas far-distance colonies and... It is very Occidentalist, you know, it, it works well for Western European history, but not so well for other parts of Europe. And so what I am proposing in my book is basically an alternative concept or complementary, if you want, to be less dialectic, so to say. And that is that Europeans should study, or at least historians dealing with Europe, should take into account the history of the near neighborhoods, of neighboring spaces, such as across the Mediterranean, such as, you know, um, well, the vast outreach of the Soviet or the Russian Empire, which is, of course, geographically not all in Europe. We don't want to cut off European history at the Urals, right? That would be ridiculous. And I think it's also ridiculous to cut it off at the Bosporus or the Aegean Sea. And uh, I think this idea of a history of neighborhoods, so to say, to take that into account is wider vision. To get out of European history like a box, like a territorial container, that can also include the transatlantic space. And that, of course, may one time be criticized as Eurocentric. Um, but I think it's a fruitful alternative to take into account, especially in migration history, these neighboring spaces, because there's, this is where the bulk of in and out migration took place, um, especially concerning flight, but also where very many economic exchanges occurred and that's why I introduced uh, this concept. And the last question is, again, about the buzzword, which is very much there, and that's the methodological nationalism uh, that uh, uh, you quoted Hannah Arendt in the book uh, saying that uh, the, the refugee status is a kind of statelessness characterized by the statelessness. So... Uh, on the one hand, uh, there is the nation state as a category of analysis. On the other hand, there is this transnational regime of uh, uh, regulating the status of, of refugees. And uh, of course, I don't want to use the historical analogy, but of course, uh, nowadays we also see this kind of conflicts uh, evolving around this kind of uh, tension. So my question is about uh, how do you use the nation state as a as a unit of analysis and how the refugees just uh, transcending this kind of category or creating a new possibility for analysis. The legal term refugee, according to the HCR, is very much shaped by the nation state age and by the United Nations, you know, 
see the term, right? United Nations, UN, uh, in the sense that only refugees who cross international boundaries, so to say international refugees, are acknowledged as refugees according to the UNHCR. Other refugees, and there are more of them, two times more, who take flight within a given country, they are accounted for as IDPs, internally displaced people, uh, which get much less coverage in the media, but also by international organizations. So, but already this shows us that, okay, the nation state was very important, even more important when the Geneva Convention was created back in the 1950s. But nowadays we have a very, a very different set of problems. One, that, you know, conflicts in our times are rarely kind of conflicts between two states, two countries, you know, like in traditional warfare, but very often conflicts within a country. Of course, with the involvement of external actors, but um, nevertheless, so more like uh, civil war-like situations, with also non-state actors. These also generate the most massive flight movements in recent times, like in Syria, for example. Uh, so here the setup has changed. It's not one country, one army, which creates mass flight anymore, like the Red Army and then, you know, uh, the Eastern Bloc countries, Soviet Union, uh, post-war Poland pushing out Germans, okay, they have one main actor, the military, and then several states. It gets much more complicated. And that means that in the analysis of all those processes, we need a strong dose of internationalism and transnationalism. That's very important. I tried to do that in my book, of course. Also because refugees are in a way transnational agents, not out of their own will, but with their own lives, right? And their trajectories and, and um, itineraries, this is transnational. On the other hand, when they arrive somewhere, then they are confronted with state and usually nation-state regimes, governments, which then deal with them based on their national laws and hopefully uh, fairly humane asylum laws. And then, you know, the nation-state comes back in. And also when the refugees arrive, they are also confronted with the society. And even if you don't like the concept, there's a perception that the majority societies and those who arrive, we may criticize that on academic grounds, but it's a very common and widespread perception. And so there then the nation state comes in again. The whole concept of integration is driven by nation-state concepts and ideas of, you know, national or nationalizing societies. So because of that, it needs to be treated critically and carefully. I, I tried to do that in my book. Um, later on, however, when we look at the actual lives of refugees, the afterlives, after their arrival, and that's an important part of the book and, and an important goal, not to stop with the flight itself, but to say something about the afterlives of the refugees. When you look at that, then again, you know, you have interesting mixtures and crossovers and which you cannot easily put into national terms. And that's already visible in our colloquial language. Like, I don't know if you take Germany, Deutsch-Türken, right? German Turks. Of course, uh, in, in traditional immigration societies like the United States, that is much older. Italian-Americans and so on. But you ha so you say you have those kind of hyphen, uh, hyphen nationalities, which is, and even that is, of course, a crude simplification, 
because somebody who comes from Turkey is not necessarily a Turk, let alone a Muslim. Can be an alibi, can be a non-believer. Um, so, you know, then it gets more complicated. And that is, of course, then the challenge to historiography to take that individualism of every refugee, it's an individual case, also according to asylum laws, but also then the individualism on, you know, in, on the social history, cultural history level, to take that very seriously and inscribe that into the history of refugees. That is then the difficult task. I hope um, contributed to that. Thank you. That's a beautiful line to finish this uh, discussion. My guest was uh, Philip Teer, the director of Institute of East European History at the University of Vienna. Uh, my name is Andrea Petter. This was the podcast of the subcommittee of the history of the Second World War of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences from uh, the CU podcast studio. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the good interview. Mm-hmm.